KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. San Diego has a new member of Congress in the 53rd District. Being a new generation of leaders is about looking at old problems with a new lens and a sense of urgency. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is leaning toward a Democratic majority ready for the kind of leadership that fights for working San Diegans, fights to protect our environment, um, really puts our community first. And that's what we're seeing in these results uh, so far. We'll discuss the winning and losing local ballot measures and state propositions and ask why the polls did not predict this national nail biter. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. The national vote is turning out to be much closer than most analysts and polls predicted. Former Vice President Joe Biden is expected to speak to the nation about the electoral vote count, which right now has Biden in the lead. When Biden speaks, we'll bring those remarks to you live. Well, votes are also still being counted in many Senate and congressional races across the country. Most of San Diego's congressional races were won handily by incumbents and newcomer Sarah Jacobs in the 53rd District. There's a tighter race in the 50th between Daryl Issa and Amar Kampanajar. And in the city of San Diego, Todd Gloria is leading in the race for mayor. But before we get into the specifics of those races, let's get an overview of the election. Joining me is UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kowser. And Thad, welcome. Happy Election Day Part 2, Maureen. Yeah, Part 2. We don't know how many parts there are going to be. That's my first question to you. How long, in your opinion, is the county counting going to go on in the race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? What are your thoughts about that? Well, as always, we're, we're going to have to be patient and, and, and say, let's see. So I think what we're seeing here is President Trump outperforming the polls. There wasn't a Biden landslide, which which if the polls were absolutely right, we, we would have seen. He won the close battleground states in places like Texas, like Florida, Ohio, and Texas. But Joe Biden seems to be outperforming Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, potentially taking Arizona and Wisconsin and, and leading so far in, in Biden there, razor thin margin in Michigan. The reason why we need to be so patient is because Americans have changed the way they voted with COVID. We're seeing 
absentee ballots in states where people choose to cast their ballot by mail, we're seeing them shifting hugely blue, hugely democratic from, from both polls. And as we've seen some of these late votes come in, so that means what you see in early returns, not what you're gonna see when things are finalized. That's why counting all these races is important. We're looking at at least potentially 24 hours for Pennsylvania, for, uh, for Wisconsin, for Michigan. And let's remember that, uh, that many of these states allow ballots cast on or before election day, but arriving there afterwards to still be legally counted. And all states allow that for overseas military voters waiting for all those votes to be counted if they could affect the margin could take us another day or two. I want to go back to what you said about the polling, because once again, as in 2016, it appears that much of the pre-election polling got it wrong. Uh, Biden had strong leads in most polls, and now we're talking about perhaps a narrow victory. So what's going on? Well, I think to fully evaluate the polls, we're going to need to know the final results to know exactly whether there was error and how much error there was. In the states where we do have final results, in in a place like Ohio and Florida that that were toss-ups, you saw Donald Trump running ahead, uh, strongly ahead of the polls. So what's going on there? Well, one of the questions could be, this could be really driven by turnout. It seems like Donald Trump energized uh, his base to an extraordinary, uh, to, in an extraordinary fashion. People who stayed home in 2018, right, where, his, where the, the fact that his base wasn't as energized as the Democrats was a big part of why the Democrats retook the House in 2018. Now, if that bears out, then the question is, is this, was this just like intrinsic interest? Was this a function of the Republican Party being more aggressive in in-person GOTV, get out the vote uh, um, rallies in person that we saw, whereas the, the Democrats were doing things more over Zoom and in drive-in rallies. That could be part of a feature, but I think we need definitely more time to figure out exactly what the error was, who it was among, and, and what the potential causes were. You know, Democrats also hope to regain the Senate. Where does that effort stand at this moment? I think things are looking like a much more narrow path for Democrats to regain the Senate. Some of some of the strongest chances for for winning the three if Joe Biden wins or four seats needed if uh, if the Republicans hold the vice president as a tie breaking vote in the Senate. Those went away really fairly early on election night uh, when Maine looked like it was strongly going for Susan Collins, who cast many tough votes in support of the president and in many of his controversial nominees. She has now su- survived yet another political challenge in, in the ever competitive seat in Maine. Uh, in North Carolina, where Democrats had where this huge spending, more, hundreds of millions of dollars on this on, on this Senate seat, it looks now like the Republicans will hold that seat and the Democratic candidate uh, may have really shot himself in the foot with, uh, with, with a, a, a personal scandal. Um, there are some, a, a few Democratic pickups, but they would have to run the table of the remaining seats in order to retake control of the Senate, which would then allow major policy moves if Joe Biden wins, potentially changing things like uh, changing the structure of the Supreme Court. That looks like it has much less likelihood right now. Well, bringing it back to here in San Diego, the fact that so many ballots were returned and counted before Election Day made calling many races possible last night. But which races do you think might still be affected by votes yet to be counted? 
Yeah, so in an election where nationally we had to be more patient than usual, uh, we were allowed to indulge a little bit of our impatience uh, in, in California and in San Diego, where the extraordinary number of, of votes cast early. So not only were more people voting by mail, but people were actually not waiting until the last minute getting things in and all the early voting run in these super polling sites by, by the registrar and, and, and it, it seemed to perform incredibly well. That led to a stronger count. And so it looks like San Diego mayor's race, uh, the, the balance of power in the supervisor's district with Dems uh, capturing, it looks like a, a majority. Those look like they have fairly strong leads, but competitive uh, competitive congressional districts and, and many of these like really important local races, school districts. We see some really close fights in school districts where that really matters for things like reopening uh, and, and approaching the pandemic. Those are ones where anything that's within these five percentage point margins, there's still enough ballots out right. there uh, that we need to count in order for anyone to have a firm conclusion on those. Okay, Thad, we'll be back to talk with you about the important state propositions. But right now, we'll turn our focus to specific races. And that begins with Allison and San Diego Mayor. The race for San Diego mayor is still too close to call, but Democratic State Assemblyman Todd Gloria has a healthy double-digit lead over Democratic City Councilwoman Barbara Bree. Joining me to talk about the mayor's race and the outcomes of the other elections in the city of San Diego is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Allison. Thanks. So what do we know about the, the status of the mayor's race? Well, as you said, we know Todd Gloria has a fairly comfortable lead. Uh, it's currently, as we speak, uh, just over 56% to Breeze just under 44%. We know that, um, you know, when the first results were posted, those were the mail-in ballots, the early votes in person. He had a slightly bigger lead, just over 57%. So his uh, share of the vote has narrowed ever so slightly, even less than one percentage point as more votes were counted, and that could continue to happen as the votes uh, continue to be counted. Um, but, you know, th we also know that the share of the overall votes that were counted on election night was expected to be larger because so many people voted early and, and, and uh, by mail. So I think that, um, you know, if you're Todd Gloria right now, you're, you're feeling pretty good. Huh. But going into this race, polling showed that these candidates were running virtually neck and neck. Why do you think the polls didn't capture what actually happened? Well, beyond the fact that that accurate polling is really difficult to do nowadays, I think what it likely means is that, um, you know, most of the polls showed uh, at least a third of city voters undecided as of um, October. And what this likely means is that most of those undecided voters end ended up voting for Todd Gloria. And I, that's not all that surprising, given that he had a lot of really big institutional backing and big name endorsements. So if you're a Democratic voter and you don't know much about either of the mayoral candidates and one of the candidates, Todd Gloria, is endorsed by the county party, endorsed by Senator Kamala Harris and other big name Democrats, he might seem like the safer bet. But um, both mayoral candidates are Democrats, but they were appealing to really different voters. Talk about their campaign strategies and how their approaches appear to have worked at this point. 
Yeah, well, uh, Councilmember Bree really painted herself as an outsider, as an independent-minded Democrat, uh, sort of anti-establishment, and she was really reaching out to more conservative voters in some of the positions she was taking and the issues that she was talking about. She really wanted to build a coalition of Democrats who were upset with the, the direction of the county party, Republicans and independents. It, uh, you know, it, it, one thing we might learn now is um, Republicans in the city uh, are are maybe not the kingmaker that some people thought they would be. Uh, Democrats have a very big advantage in terms of voter registration. And also, it probably didn't help Barbara Bree that Scott Sherman, the Republican-endorsed candidate in the primary and a fellow city council member, said a few days before the election that he he was voting for Todd Gloria, and he had some pretty uh, uh, unflattering things to say about Councilmember Bree. Beyond that, I think that there was probably a, a boost in progressive turnout, which may have worked in Todd Gloria's favor because many people were turning out uh, to vote against Donald Trump. Now, there are still more than 300,000 votes to be counted and we won't have updated results till tomorrow evening. Is it possible, though, that one of these candidates will make a statement before then? You know, we know that uh, Todd Gloria is speaking to reporters this afternoon. Um, listening to what he said last night, he really stopped short of declaring victory. Um, here's a bit of what he said at that point. San Diego, because of you, we are poised to make history. While there are still votes to be counted, I believe that tonight is a night to celebrate. So, you know, you can hear Todd Gloria saying he's he's uh, feeling good about the race, not quite ready to declare victory as as so many more votes are left to be counted. Now, uh, Councilmember Bree is not expected to do any interviews or, or speak to reporters again today. But she put out a statement which essentially um, mirrors what she said last night, uh, which is this. We are behind, but there's still a lot of votes left to count. Uh, I remember that in the primary, we were behind on election night, and over the next few weeks, we made up the ground as more votes were counted. And Andrew, the city council races could be really significant too, because based on the people leading and the results we have at the moment, the council could become an eight-to-one Democratic majority. Any surprises in these races? I am a little bit surprised by the margins that we're seeing in the two city council races that had a Democrat versus Republican. The first being District 5. This is Scripps Ranch, Rancho Penasquitos, Rancho Bernardo. Uh, it's currently held by an independent who used to be a Republican, and he's termed out. So we have Democrat Marnie Von Wilpert uh, against Republican Joe Leventhal. Of course, these races are officially nonpartisan, although party affiliation does play a pretty big role in, in local politics. Uh, Marnie Von Wilpert has also a double-digit lead in that district. It was once seen as the Republican stronghold. So, um, you know, if if the margins were closer at this point, if it were a tighter race, then I would say she might have reason to be worried that late, later counted votes would not be in her favor. But um, she's got a pretty comfortable lead, and that's a bit of a surprise to me. And then in District 7, we've got uh, Raul Campillo, a Democrat, uh, with an even bigger lead over the Republican in that race, Noli Zosa. So, you know, in terms of what an 8-1 Democratic majority on the city council would do, 
uh, we don't really know yet. I mean, they already have a 6-3 majority on the city council right now, and uh, they're obviously going to be capturing the mayor's race um, either way, the Democrats. So, uh, you know, perhaps it could be just more of a symbolic victory, a victory, um, you know, in terms of Democrats now are really taking over city government. Yeah, beginning to look like Sacramento. Now, San Diego City voters are are also weighing in on five ballot measures. None of them have been called yet, but there are some pretty clear leads. Starting with Measure A, that one would raise taxes to fund affordable housing, and it's leading with 57% of the vote. It's leading with 57% of the vote, but that's not the two-thirds majority it needs. What are you taking away from that result? Well, I'm taking away that uh, it's really hard to raise taxes in San Diego, despite the blueing of the city, despite Democrats having an increasingly big uh, majority among voters. uh, That two thirds threshold in order to raise taxes for a specific purpose is uh, might just be insurmountable for the city at this point. There are too many Republicans and too many independents and too many Democrats, perhaps, that that are averse to raising taxes uh, for for a, a tax measure like this to actually make it across that two-thirds finish line. And Measure B would establish a police review board for the city with subpoena power, and it has a commanding lead with 75% of the votes. What are the voters saying here? I think they're saying they want more independent oversight of the police. Uh, This measure was certainly helped by the massive uh, wave of protest that we saw in the spring and summer uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter and things like that. And so, um, you know, it, it also, I think, says that you know, this this right this I'll say this measure is not a big surprise, the margin of victory, because even the police union had dropped its opposition to this measure. There was no statement in the voter uh, guide uh, against it. So uh, without any funded or organized opposition, Measure B seemed like a, a, a an easy win for for its supporters. And then Measure E would remove the 30-foot height limit in parts of the Midway District. That's the area around the sports arena. It's also leading with 57% of yes votes. That could mean a big change in that part of the city, right? Absolutely. Uh, it could mean more development in Midway. It could mean, uh, you know, the the supporters really saw this as vital to the revitalization of that neighborhood, which is um, not the prettiest place in, in San Diego right now. Um, this measure also not a big surprise that it's winning uh, with such a big margin. It had the support of both the Republican and Democratic parties in San Diego County, a host of uh, of interest groups. So, uh, you know, the, the supporters there, I think, uh, we're feeling pretty good and, and it's very likely to, to ultimately pass. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Allison. And we should mention the other two city ballot measures, Measure C, which would require district-only elections for the San Diego Unified School Board. It's leading with 69% of voters supporting the measure. And Measure D, which would allow the San Diego Unified School Board to remove a board member, also looks like it will pass with 86% voting in favor. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is one of the most powerful agencies in the region. The board controls a $6.5 billion budget that funds social services, mental health and law enforcement, among other things. The board also decides on new development in the unincorporated areas. In the county's District 1 race, Nora Vargas appears to be leading over Ben Hueso to represent the South County. Both are Democrats. 
In District 2, a reliably Republican seat, Poway Mayor Steve Voss is marginally ahead of former State Senator Joel Anderson. But the District 3 seat on the board is the most significant politically, as it's a swing district and will determine the balance of power on the five-member county board. That seat stretches from the coast at Del Mar, from Solano Beach and Encinitas across to Escondido. It's currently held by Republican Kristen Gaspar. KBBS has called the race in favour of Gaspar's challenger, Democrat Tara Lawson-Reamer. Reamer currently has almost 60% of the vote. Tara, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much. Now, the results aren't finalized yet, but you appear poised to win. And yours is a district that is changing politically. How's that played into your winning numbers so far? I honestly think uh, folks across the district uh, have been ready for some time and increasingly over the last four years, ready for the kind of leadership that uh, fights for working San Diegans, fights to protect our environment, um, really puts our community first. And that's what we're seeing in these results uh, so far. If your win's confirmed, this would be your first time holding public office, though you've been involved in politics for years. Would this be a steep learning curve for you? I, I think it's something I come incredibly well prepared for, right? So I, I've worked in the Obama administration. I've worked with the World Bank. I've worked with the United Nations. So uh, a lot of the the nuts and bolts um, of what it's going to take to get things done are um, things that I've done and am good at doing and have uh, built a lifetime of, of engaging on policy and policy analysis. Um, and then I also, I think, I'm very fortunate to, to be trained as an economist. Um, my PhD is in political economy. It really gives you a, a important expertise on fiscal policy, um, as well as being an attorney, um, which is very helpful in sort of thinking through and understanding the nuts and bolts of, of how uh, laws actually operate in action. So I, I think I probably come um, to the to the job um, probably more prepared, more well prepared than most. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to put those skills to work serving our community. Now, the county board is um, the agency that calls the shots in San Diego about which businesses can open based on the state's tier system when we're assessing the um, reaction to the coronavirus. Kristen Gaspar was calling for more local control and she wanted fewer restrictions on businesses and businesses are suffering. Where do you stand on that very difficult question? So it's an incredibly, incredibly difficult question. I think we're all really suffering. I mean, this is this uh, COVID crisis has been going on, you know, since March, and now we're in November, and I think we're going to be in it probably for another year before we can really say we're on the other side. So it's um it's a really huge burden on uh, not just our businesses, but also uh, employees who've lost their jobs and parents who are trying to homeschool their children or uh, have their children enrolled in Zoom school while they're also working, and uh, people who can't see their their family members, um, you know, grandparents who can't see their grandkids. So I think it's just the psychological, the economic, uh, the social toll is just absolutely enormous in addition to the, you know, the public health and the real risk that people face um, in terms of, you know, getting sick and, and losing a life or losing a loved one. So we're all in this together. And I think that has to be our guiding principle. So how do we come together to to tackle this crisis in a way that's going to protect all of us and and make sure that we're we're especially um, you know doing what we can for those who are most vulnerable. Um, so in that regard, um, you know I think it'll be important to sort of take a fresh look at. Uh, the right kind of response to this crisis. You know, now that we've been in it for a long while, um, I'd like to revisit again whether uh, we can scale up um, 
contact tracing and testing in the ways they've done in other countries where uh, there's just so much more testing, um, which, you know, something, uh, you know, they've tried, our counties tried really hard to do that, but might be worth uh, trying again and, and looking at that. And in terms of focusing on anything that should get uh, opened or prioritized opening, I think that it needs to, we need to lead with our schools and daycares uh, because, it's really not only um, important for working parents to be able to have their children in school, um, and it's a massive drag on our whole economy uh, when when parents um, aren't able to send their kids to school or daycare. Uh, it also is disproportionately impacting women. I mean, we're seeing women dropping out of the workforce in droves um, because they just uh, have so many more of the demands and of of ch uh, childcare. Um, and they're not able to balance the two, uh, given that we don't have the the schools open, and and that's another piece of it. But also the kids, you know, so many kids are missing out on really uh, vital learning years and socialization. Um, so I think that's my priority, and then kind of building from there um, out as to what else we can and reopen safely for for our uh, community. So this this seat is one of five votes on the board on new developments. What will you do to encourage or discourage developers from proposing large new master plan developments in the backcountry? Well, I think it's just about resetting expectations. I think um, folks know I'm not going to be supporting amendments to the general plan. I think uh, we should stick with the footprint that the general plan has established and not going to be voting in favor of those uh, general plan amendments. Uh, but on the other hand, I am going to be you know, really taking a hard look at um, what the county can do to make it um, more feasible and uh, economically viable to build affordable housing closer to where people live and work. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of a carrot and a stick, right? You know, maybe no more projects in the backcountry, but certainly going to be um, much better and more proactive partners for developers who, who want to uh, build in sort of the right places in our community. Kristen Gaspar, who held this seat previously, also had a seat on the Regional Transportation Planning Board, Sandag, which is proposing a radical shift of resources away from uh, roads and towards uh, beefing up public transit. Gasper was very skeptical of that plan. Where do you stand? Well, I think it's vital that we look to uh, new approaches to transit in, um, in San Diego, right? This old approach of uh, just building more and more roads is part of what's led to our sprawl development and building in the backcountry, but it's also really contributed to traffic because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we're building houses farther from where people live and work, then everyone's just jammed onto the roads trying to get where they need to go. Um, so I think it's important we take a fresh look at that. I, I The specifics of the Sandag proposal, I've said uh, for a long while now that I think there's a lot that's in there that's interesting, but um, I'd like to see a impact study, an impact uh, feasibility study to see really how is this going to play economically in San Diego. Um, you know, we know that it, it, there's a lot on paper there that you know, San Diego has put out, but uh, I'd like to see an independent assessment about, um, you know, what's, what's the impact going to be economically and in terms of, you know, how well we're really going to be able to um, support affordable housing options uh, with new transit investments. And I think that's important. Uh, and certainly it's vital that we recognize that San Diego is really diverse and there's parts of San Diego that we need to invest in fixing our roads because um, that's what's, you know, that's all that we have. And that's, that's what makes sense. There's other parts of San Diego where uh, public transit might make sense. Um, and those are not the same. And, and we need to embrace that diversity and, and have different solutions for different parts of our county. Now, this is a swing district, and Kristen Gasper attacked you during the campaign as a, as a radical who will spend taxpayer money unwisely. What do you say to voters who might be worried about that? 
couple things. I mean, first of all, I would say it was just really sad, uh, sort of the tenor of the campaign. Um, you know, the a lot of what they put out about me was just uh, either completely a lie or uh, blatantly misleading and um, was really, an, an, I think, a, a testament um, to the strength of our campaign um, that they they couldn't figure out anything to say for Gaspar's own record. So they just had to, to spread a bunch of fear about me as a candidate. Um, you know, not that dissimilar from what Trump has done Globe, uh, nationally and, uh, you know, the same thing, right? Communist, socialist, Antifa. And then you hear Gaspar saying whatever Trump was saying the day before, um, but directed at me. So I, I think that's a really the the core dynamic. Um, so I'm just mostly looking to hope that um, our community can come together because I'm going to be a supervisor for everyone. And, uh, you know, I, I really hope people don't uh, you get uh, misled by those kind of fear-mongering tactics that are uh, the hallmark of you know, kind of desperate and um, a little bit dirty campaigning. Um, so that's the main thing I would say. But the, I would say more broadly, it's it's also frankly just quite silly. Uh, you know, I'm an economist by training. I was I worked in the Obama Treasury Department. I've worked around the world helping economies recover from economic crises. Um, and one of the first things I'm really interested in doing is standing up. Um, an initiative at the county that looks at uh, cost benefit, does cost benefit analysis of everything we do uh, to make sure that the taxpayer money is being spent wisely and is going uh, in the right direction to benefit our community. Um, and that's something we haven't had. And so those are the kind of practical things I'm going to be bringing to the job on day one. We've been speaking with Tara Lawson-Reamer, who is currently ahead in the District 3 race on the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. Tara, thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. One of the most closely watched and most expensive congressional races in the country is in San Diego's 50th district. The seat once held by convicted Congressman Duncan Hunter is being fought over by Republican Darrell Issa and Democrat Amar Kampanajar. The tally now stands at 52% for Issa, almost 48% for Kampanajar, with 78% of the vote counted. A winner has not been officially called in this race. Joining me with more on the 50th district race is KPB. BS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Now, Kampanajar has been campaigning in this district for almost four years. Can you tell us about his effort? Yeah, you know, Maureen, he jokingly says that a lot, that he's been campaigning in this district that's heavily Republican uh, for, for four years, just for a two-year term, uh, really trying to flip the district blue. Obviously, it appears that that's not going to be happening this year. Um, we know that it, he did run in 2018, got 48% of the vote. He's been doing this for a while. He did address supporters last night, basically saying, saying, look, you know, no matter what happens, they feel like that they've made an impact on the district. I know it's been a tough race with fits and starts and 
trials and tribulations and triumphs and defeats. You know, we've gone through primaries together. We've gone through generals, now a second general election together. And I really do believe we have changed the culture of this district forever. And we actually have an updated statement from Camp Ajar posting um, on social media uh, this morning saying that they're still looking at the returns with a measure of hope and urging every vote to be counted. So, Maureen, it sounds like he's not ready uh, to concede anytime soon. What kind of an advantage did being a Republican give Daryl Issa in this district? I mean, I think talking to Issa, he certainly thinks that that gave him a big experience, a, a big advantage in this. You know, he often touts his experience um, as a proven conservative, someone who can work with Democrats but won't compromise his Republican values. I mean, keep in mind, too, there is a registration advantage in the district. Uh, uh, there's about 40 percent registered Republicans and about 30 percent registered Democrats. Um, and, you know, we talk about uh, Duncan Hunter being a damaged candidate. I think Issa came in there and, you know, thought that this was his race to, to win, so to speak. So ISA is currently in the lead by nearly 12,000 votes. So what are analysts saying about whether or not Kampanajar can overcome ISA's lead? Yeah, so talking with some of like political scientists, um, sort of what panned out last night is what they were predicting. Um, Amar in, in the lead with some of the early returns, which we saw. And then, you know, as they predicted a, a sort of a red wave on, on election day of Republican voters voting in person, uh, we saw that lead start to dwindle. And then we saw ISA uh, come on top. And now that lead is continuing to grow. Um, so I think, you know, they, they, they think that lead is going to continue to grow. I think the ISA camp thinks the same thing. And uh, at this point, you know, it's just a, a small percentage of votes left. Only time will tell uh, if he's able to overcome uh, the ISA lead right now. And the next numbers, the next vote count doesn't come out from the registrar's office until tomorrow. So we will have to wait for a little while. Has Daryl ISA addressed supporters or made a statement about the vote count? Yeah, so I said did some media last night and uh, this morning on KUSI uh, was very happy. Uh, at this point, uh, to be honest, uh, I'm planning uh, a return to Congress. Um, and uh, we know that he was saying, hey, look, you know, if I'm going to win this, I need people to turn out on Election Day. Um, and it appears that happened. Uh, he did mention during that interview that he talked to Amar Kampadajar, uh, but didn't mention anything about him conceding, though. Now, Matt, you've been covering this race for some time. What were some of the crucial events that took place, in your opinion? Uh, I, I say some of the crucial events, I mean, just in general, I mean, if you talk about money and you talk about ad buys, I don't know if an ad buy is a crucial event, but, um, you know, we saw the ISA campaign really hammering ads, a lot of negative ads, to be frank, down down the stretch. ISA spending a lot of his own money. He mentioned in one inter interview that he was spending $100,000 a day. Um, and then we saw, you know, maybe a turning point for Camp and Ajar that he sort of touched on last night. Uh, he did an interview with a, a very far right group that has since been removed from Facebook called Defend East County uh, that drew a lot of criticism from Democrats, even the the, the county chair who says, look, some of Omar's views in terms of if he doesn't know who's going to vote for for president are not in line with the county party. I mean, Omar last night, you know, made some comments in his uh, speech to, to, to supporters saying, I know some of you maybe at points questioned, you know, who I was or, or some of what I thought. So, um, you know, it's really unclear. I mean, we may never know if that impacted this race, but uh, you got to wonder um, if Omar doing that interview had anything to do uh, with him losing. And once again, Daryl Issa is in the lead right now in the race for the 50th Congressional District. A winner has not been officially called in this race. And I want to thank KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Maureen. 
Sarah Jacobs has won her bid for a seat in Congress. Jacobs defeated San Diego City Councilmember Georgette Gomez in the 53rd Congressional District. It's the first time in nearly 20 years that the district has had a new representative. And Democrat Jacobs will join a House of Representatives that has maintained its Democratic majority. And Sarah Jacobs joins me now. And Sarah, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you. Now, you've said that you represent a new generation of leaders. What do you think distinguishes that new generation? I think that being a new generation of leaders is about looking at old problems with a new lens and a sense of urgency, looking at new problems that, you know, Congress hasn't really been addressing yet, and also doing things differently and listening to everyone and respecting everyone and working with everyone to get things done. Can you give me an example of some of the issues that you'd like to look at or look at differently? I think the next Congress is going to be entirely focused on getting us out of this current public health and economic crisis. And my focus will be making sure that assistance gets to those who need it most, our families and our small businesses. And I really want to make sure that in any stimulus package that passes, we have funding for child care because we know so many families are really struggling with that. There are so many issues, as you say, that are facing this new Congress. What congressional committees do you have in mind that you'd like to join? I really hope to do something either in foreign affairs or armed services, given my background and the fact that so many uh, members of our district are veterans and in military families. Uh, and I'm also hoping to be able to work on early childhood education and child care. Uh, so that would be education and labor. You know, it looks like no matter the ultimate outcome of the presidential race, Washington will still be politically polarized. How will you get anything done in that environment? Well, I think it just highlights how important it is to have leaders who can unite us and can bring our country back together. And that's how we ran our campaign, never compromising on our values, but building coalitions. And that's exactly how I'll govern. And while there are some issues that we can never compromise on, I also think there are a lot of areas like childcare, like support for small businesses, like infrastructure, like getting us out of this current economic and public health crisis that we can find bipartisan compromise on and make sure we're actually getting things done for families in our communities. Now, a lot was made during the campaign about the fact that you were fairly new to the 53rd district. How are you going to make sure that you are in touch with your constituents, their needs and their opinions? Well, I think the results of this election are a testament to the way that I intend to govern, uh, which is to be out in the community as much as possible to make sure that we are constantly in conversation with constituents in the district uh, and to make sure that everyone knows that even when we disagree, I will always listen and respect them. You know, there was uh, a hope among some Democrats that there would be a sweep in this election. It may be that we have a divided government again. So how will you be working on this stimulus package with your Republican colleagues? You know, I think that uh, it's going to be important for us to get something done and to make sure that whoever is the president and whoever controls the Senate, that we are taking care of our families and our small businesses who are really struggling right now. And I know from talking to many of my future colleagues um, that there is a lot of appetite on both sides of the aisle to make sure that we're actually helping people through this time. Are you looking forward to moving to Washington, Washington, D.C.? 
Oh, well, I'll definitely still be a San Diegan and, you know, San Diego is my home, but I'm, you know, excited to take on this new journey and to really roll my sleeves up and get to work for the people of the 53rd Congressional District. Okay. All right, then. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time and, and congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to talking to you again soon, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. California voters came out strongly in support of rideshare apps like Uber and Lyft and their effort to keep their workers as contractors. An effort to revive affirmative action got a thumbs down. Support was strong for two criminal justice reforms, but the votes were not there for rent control. Joining me with the details on some of the major state propositions, Welcome back to UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thad, thank you for joining us again. No problem. Let's start with proposition, the, a proposition put forward by San Diego Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, Proposition 16. It wanted to roll back state prohibitions on affirmative action policies. Why did Weber put this proposition forward at this time? Well, this is something that the legislature couldn't do on its own. Uh, California initiatives can only be undone by another vote of the people. And what Prop 16 would have done would be to roll back Prop 209, which was an initiative that, that, that passed in a very different political era in 1996. And I think every folks, many people, including Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, thought that the time was right with the social justice movement, with a, with a renewed focus on, on institutional racism for a, a change to that policy. Prop 16, which proposed to, to allow affirmative action again, lost and, and I think in some ways didn't get the, the political oxygen it needed to make a complex argument. It really didn't have money behind the campaign hugely either way. It was drowned out in, in some of the national conversation about the presidency uh, and, and it, the backers couldn't make their case and, and fell well short of the mark. And so what you're saying is maybe voters didn't so much reject it as in a sense not know what to do with it. Well, I think that I think people understood what this did by by allowing affirmative action, but I think the the yes side didn't have the chance to make their 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 tie between the the institutional racism that many polls show everyone has recognized after the social justice movements of this summer and the set of government policies that might address it. I think that was the the connection that that wasn't made, um, and and what led to the defeat. Okay, there were three propositions that concerned criminal justice reform in California. Let's talk first about two of them, okay? Voters supported Prop 17, restoring voting rights to parolees, 
and they and voters supported the prop 17 but they rejected prop 20 which would have reclassified some misdemeanors as felonies basically they dovetail into an af- affirmation of criminal justice reform is that what you make of those votes it is exactly so california's been through these waves of of getting tough on crime when we had rising crime rates in the 1990s and enacting some of these uh some of these sentence enhancement measures but then starting in 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 2014 and 2016 california passed a set of rules that when crime rates have been historically low that uh the reduced penalties uh prop 20 would undo two of those past initiatives in large part, but voters rejected it by a large margin. So I think that the wave of, of reaction of saying we don't need to, to throw people away, lock up the keys and keep them out of the electorate, that uh, that that wave uh, continues. But then there's the apparent defeat of Proposition 25. How did the effort to eliminate money bail wind up on the ballot in the first place? Yeah, it's a surprising one. This is a law that the legislature passed uh, a, a year or two ago and that, that would have moved from having cash bail to risk-based uh, determinations by judges. And the cash bail industry, realizing that this was an existential threat, put it up as a, as a referendum. Voters had to vote yes to keep what the legislature did. So that's a bit confusing for many people because it's sort of many people vote no to keep the status quo. This you needed to vote yes to put into a play uh, a bill that the legislature had passed. Um, again, we didn't see a big campaign on this one and, and the proponents weren't able to make their argument and commits enough Californians. Thad Kauser and I are speaking about state propositions on the ballot that we all voted on and, oh, yesterday, and the, the results are still coming in. It looks like Prop 21, that's a, a statewide rent control proposal. During this time of economic uncertainty, why do you think that was defeated? I think the no campaign uh, focused their arguments on, in some ways, some of the same arguments that the that, that people want for yes control, for rent control. They were saying they, they were making an argument that California will have more affordable housing if this loses. It's a very complicated uh, policy debate that we've been having for a long time on rent control, but we've had two initiatives now that would that would make it more possible at the local level, and and neither have passed. So I think California is going to need to find other routes to to ensuring and creating affordable housing rent control doesn't seem to be the popular route and then the most heavily advertised of all the state propositions proposition 22 voters said yes they said app-based drivers can stay contractors instead of employees can you give us a little background on that well, let's pull way back and think about how long we've had direct democracy in the world. So it started in ancient Greece. It was then revived <laughs> by Switzerland. We've had it in about half of the states. This is the single most expensive campaign in the history of direct democracy. Uh, <laughs> all of the app-based companies, Uber, Uber Lyft, uh, Postmates put in more than poured in more than two hundred million dollars. So it's, it was incredibly expensive. At the end of the day, they convinced Californians that the worker protections that they put in place, things like minimum wage, things like some moderate health benefits, things that they really didn't want to do until the legislature and and, and assemblywoman, assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez forced their hand by passing a bill. They moved the ball part of the way. Californians said that was good enough uh, and and wanted to preserve this kind of quasi-employee independent contractor status where people will be, where these drivers would be independent contractors, but have a few more protections. 
One good thing about the end of the election is we won't see any more of those ads. <laughs> or kidney dialysis. Uh, well, that's another one I wanted to ask. Is there another state proposition you'd like to highlight? Because that kidney dialysis got a lot of advertising. Yeah, again, I, I think this was essentially a, 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 a bargaining chip used by, by labor unions who, who are, are looking to get a better deal with kidney dialysis. It's the second time that the voters haven't gone along with it, but in some ways it's put pressure uh, on those companies. So uh, yeah, I'm afraid after this election, it's going to be all back to car commercials and Geico. Uh, we're <laughs> not going to get to think about politics anymore. What's the, been the most surprising thing about this election for you, Thad? Well, I think the biggest story in this election is the non-story of chaos. So we were really worried that yesterday's election day was going to be marred by voter intimidation, by violence, by problems at the polling places, by long lines, because of this closely fought election in a pandemic in a polarized nation. Across the country, we had a phenomenal job done by election officials, including ours in San Diego, and and they made this election work. Both sides were energized and turned out at, at, at huge rates. And so that fact that we got through an election day without the chaos, that was a victory that needs to be celebrated. And just my last question, uh, quickly, if you could, what does the political direction of the city and county of San Diego look like now after this election? You know, this is not San Diego that I moved to 17 years ago. It is it has shifted tremendously, uh, both in national politics and now clearly in local politics, from from a majority Republican city council to to one where Democrats now may have nine eight seats out of nine, to a majority Democratic county supervisor, and to an area where there probably will be only one, just barely. Republican congressional district. And that that transformation, which has stemmed in, in, in demography and political matters, is, is the biggest story to me of, of San Diego over time. I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thanks for speaking, sticking with us, Thad. Thanks as always. Always a pleasure, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.